everybody, by popular listener demand, a Stuff Mom Never Told You store is now live. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.Spreadshirt.com and check out all of the Stuff Mom Never Told You t-shirts, tote bags, pins, coffee mugs, cell phone cases, even sweatshirts that you can pick up for yourself or maybe even a fellow Stuff Mom Never Told You fan this holiday season. And now through December 2nd, you can also take advantage of the Black Friday sale happening where you can get free standard shipping with the purchase of two or more products with the promo code HOLIDAY. So don't wait. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.Spreadshirt.com and get your sminty swag on. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, Kristen and I have tackled a whole lot of cultural stereotypes this year. We've talked about the spicy Latina stereotype, the issue of calling women exotic, and really what that connotation entails. And today we're going to turn our attention to a stereotype that exists about a particular subset of American Indian culture, and that is the Indian princess stereotype. We want to look at where this whole stereotype came from, first of all, but also the effect that it can have on uh, American Indian women today. Yeah, and I have a feeling that unlike, say, the spicy Latina stereotype, this one might not be as uh, immediately recognizable. We might not see it as much in our day-to-day pop culture, but it's also partially because of that that we wanted to talk about it, because this is a stereotype in particular that really collapses all of these different cultures. I, I don't I don't think that many people even recognize the fact that there are, for instance, 562 federally recognized Native American tribes in the U.S. And because a lot of times, for reasons that we'll talk about in this podcast, we see them through just this one one image, just one or, or at least we see the women through. Uh, this image. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there are plenty of stereotypes about Native Americans, not just women specifically. Historically, they've been portrayed as inferior to Europeans when Europeans first came to the continent and just generally inferior to white people today. Today, stereotypes exist about the fact that, oh, they're all alcoholics living on reservations. They're all lazy. They won't go out and get an education and get jobs. And on the flip side of the same stereotype, a lot of people still just assume that every person of Native American heritage is more spiritual and wise than anyone else. And while certainly there are very real issues that happen on reservations in terms of economic blight, in terms of lower educational attainment, in terms of them not receiving the same kinds of resources that Americans elsewhere in the country receive. And because of that, it has produced a lot of problems that do include things like alcoholism. But it is important to dig back into the history and see how we have gotten to this point. Um, and we're going to focus in, yes, on this Indian princess 
stereotype. And also just a, a, a note on language. Uh, some people prefer Native Americans. Other people prefer American Indian. Uh, the Associated Press Style Guide, for instance, recommends American Indian or whenever possible, actually referring to someone as their tribe that they are a part of. So we are going to be using the terms Native American and American Indian probably interchangeably throughout this podcast. But just to note that we have done our research on that part. Yeah, well, so Kristen mentioned the very real uh, social and economic issues that face a lot of Native Americans, whether they're on reservations or not today. And a part of that stems from a lot of the papers we read talked about the fact that a lot of these issues stem from a culture of oppression that a lot of these peoples, a lot of these cultures have faced. And a lot of that, in turn, stems from the limitations that are placed on people when you try to force them into these stereotypical roles, when you don't allow people to be who they are. And when we looked at the paper called Debunking the Pocahontas Paradox, The Need for a Humanistic Perspective, they talked, the writers talked about how early European explorers considered Native American Indians the quote essence of what people would be without Christian and civilized behavior. And that's both good and bad, depending on who's writing the history at the time. Because this perception led a lot of Europeans to assume that Native Americans were beasts, they were savages, and they were heathens. But at the same time, that also led later on a little bit to the perception that American Indians were these noble savages who were so much more in touch with nature than the civilized white man. Well, and that also leads into, from the 15th century, this um, perception of, uh, particularly by Europeans, of... American Indians as either good in terms of supporting their expansionist goals or bad in terms of fighting these invaders mm-hmm. off from their land. And it's just incredible to see even how through artwork, these uh, very Eurocentric ideas of the savage versus the civilized Christian mm-hmm. um, really plays out and sort of feeds into this concept of manifest destiny of, oh, you know, we're actually doing a good thing by coming in here because we will convert them to Christianity. We will civilize them. We will take their women and marry them. And won't that be great? Um, so even if you look at early European art depicting Native American women, these kinds of themes that lead into uh, the Indian princess stereotype quickly emerge. Uh, For instance, there is a mid-19th century painter who's pretty well known, Alfred Miller, and he painted all sorts of portraits um, portraying American Indian life. And there was one in particular from 1845, this oil painting called The Trapper's Bride. And in the foreground, there's a Pocahontas-like woman who is being handed off, presumably by her father, to a white trapper. And there's a paper that I was reading about this that called it a symbolic portrayal of the marriage between civilization and the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uncivilized woman in need of domesticating by a civilized white man. And of course, that ties into the greater metaphorical use of this imagery in terms of representing America or what would be America as the Native American, the wild and untamed person 
becoming tamed and civilized by white men, basically. But yeah, he, Alfred Miller also had another painting. I mean, he, he painted all sorts of scenes of the, of the frontier and of the untamed wilderness. And a lot of them featured half naked Native American women. There was one that shows a woman swinging from a tree branch and she's completely topless with just basically a skirt on. And it's, you know, it's it's open to interpretation as to whether he actually witnessed anything like that or just chose to portray Native American women in morally inferior positions to their colonizers. Um, he was he's been critiqued as using this whole domestic ideology to create images of Native American women as domestic moral influencers on the frontiers instead of co-contributors to survival. And it's also worth noting that amid this background of trying to force these kind of domestic ideologies onto these peoples, pre-colonial American Indian societies were for the most part not male dominated. Yes, there was a division of labor, a gendered division of labor, but a lot of tribes were actually matrilineal, for mm-hmm. instance, including uh, the Mataponi, of which Pocahontas was a part of. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> right. And so it's interesting, though, to see this this total manipulation of what was going on, but manipulating things through art and, and depicting things as being a certain way for European audiences. And I mean, we still see echoes of that today in our modern media because newcomers to the quote unquote new world, their experiences with American Indians, Native American peoples were really shaped through the, quote, literary and visual representations that helped perpetuate stereotypes. And that reminded me of uh, a point in this paper, Our Indian Princess Subverting the Stereotype by Nancy Mithlow, that jumped out, which said, white images of natives tell us more about whites' attitudes Mm -hmm. and beliefs than about native realities. And it's it's notable, too, that we've been talking for the past few minutes about art because that paper, Our Indian Princess, was all about native-made art and also uh, often how it's not so much considered art but more artifact, mm-hmm. which also says a lot, again, about whites' attitudes. Right, exactly. And so, you know, if, if we look at general tropes uh, about American Indians, and there's a great website all about this called redface.us, that's red-face.us, that goes into all of these tropes and stereotypes. And they talk about the ones that are specific to men, like the chief, the noble savage, um, the warrior or the brave. Um, and then they go into the ones that are specific to women. And there's really two main ones, the squaw versus the Indian princess. And boy, if we in modern society do not still have the same arguments about women in terms of the squaw versus the Indian princess dichotomy, the whole quiet, subservient, serving her husband woman versus the woman that we consider too strong and maybe maybe we call her a tramp. Well, and I didn't realize this um, in, in one of the sources we were reading. It noted that it was originally um, an, a neutral word for woman, but it's now often perceived as a derogatory term. Yeah. And there was another paper that was talking about reclaiming the word squaw the way that we talk about reclaiming bitch or reclaiming queer today. 
while there are definitely languages that still use squaw and variations of the word squaw to talk about women or women or female things, animals, whatever, um, largely in modern society, squaw is still considered pretty derogatory. Yeah, because it's sort of, at least according to what we were reading, it has, in its derogatory sense, become uh, metonymy for a woman's vagina. Mm-hmm. Because they're also through this specific uh, trope, um, squaws also were considered sexual servants in a way for um, white men in particular as well. They were the one they weren't the, the desirable princesses like a Pocahontas of legend, but rather, um, you know, you know, the women who were just willing to have sex. You would you would want to have sex with her, but you wouldn't want to marry her. That whole thing. Yeah. And and it's interesting to look at the first use uh, among white Europeans of the word squaw. It's first mentioned in English by William Bradford and Edward Winslow, who were describing life in the Plymouth colony. And they mentioned the squaw sachim or the Massachusetts queen, Massachusetts being an entire culture of people. Um And I mean, that's going to lead us into talking about the Indian princess, because by talking about the Massachusetts queen, these Europeans are framing Native Americans further as something that more white people could understand. Like, here's some language that you fellow Europeans back in England will understand and be able to to get it. Basically, right. The Indian princess is basically a female equivalent of the male noble savage figure that quote unquote good Indian uh, that the Europeans would talk about. And before we get into more into Pocahontas, because a lot of it really stems from her and uh, not even really who she was in reality, but more what her legend became. um, This reduces women a lot of times, this Indian princess Stereotype reduces women to helpless maidens or metaphors. Um, we read a paper about this called The Pocahontas Paradox, a cautionary tale for educators. And it says that the Indian princess stereotype is rooted in the legend of Pocahontas and is typically expressed through characters that are maidenly, demure, and deeply committed to some white man. And a lot of this, too, is echoing the 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 history portion of our spicy latina podcast mm-hmm. where there is usually that that connection between the woman of color and her you know love and loyalty to white men. Yeah, exactly. And this this paper was written by Cornell Peewewardy, who is an incredible educator and activist in the Native American community. And he writes that this this metaphor, this woman that we're talking about, she's powerfully symbolic as queen and princess, and she's been with us since the time that she came to stand for the quote-unquote new world, a term, he says, that in and of itself reflects, of course, a Eurocentric value judgment. But it's interesting to watch the evolution of these metaphors, the princess and the queen specifically, getting away from just talking about the squaw as some basically subservient character in the European imagination. But if we go back to Terrell Awe Agahi Portman and Roger D. Herring, who were the authors of that paper we talked about earlier, debunking the Pocahontas paradox, the need for a humanistic perspective, they point out that as early as 1575, 
artists were interpreting the Indian queen character uh, as a bare-breasted woman who was wearing animal skins and leaves and jewelry and weapons. She was totally decked out as this wild thing. And she also was often depicted with her foot on some sort of dead conquest. And she was meant to represent not only the abundance of the new world, but the danger of the new world. And this then evolved into the image of the Indian princess, because the longer that white people were in the new world, the less scary it became as they were sort of conquering people around them and conquering the environment around them. And this whole Indian princess image, this woman was more uh, non-threatening. She had lighter skin and more Romanesque clothes. She wasn't quite as wild with leaves and animal skin. She was more draped in a familiar sort of educated Greek fashion. She wasn't as much of a warrior, it sounds like, compared to the Indian queen. And she's absolutely a um, precursor to like the Lady Liberty figure. Ah, and she was often she was often wrapped in like a colonial flag too, being like, "Hey, she's like our mascot." Well, right, she's bridging the gap between the two cultures. But it's it's also though notable that uh, those artistic depictions of the so-called Indian Queen that go back to the 16th century, which probably explains why Alfred Miller in that uh, portrait you were describing. Shows the woman bare-breasted, mm-hmm. swinging from the tree. She was probably more of a queen, more of a warrior than this more diminutive princess. Right, exactly. And so, just like Kristen and I have talked about with other issues of stereotypes and racism, these stereotypes basically serve to justify a certain behavior. In this case, justified expansion. And so uh, Portman and Herring write that these stereotypical images of Indian princesses became instrumental in furthering the cultural domination necessary to the colonialist enterprise. We've talked before about how perceptions and racism about black people was used as a way to justify their enslavement in our country. And so we see the same attitude here being applied to Native Americans of all cultures of all tribes, because it was a way of being like, oh, well, they don't matter. We can just shove them out of the way and and achieve our manifest destiny. And once that happens, use her image as a very popular marketing tool. And in our research for this episode, we found this incredible uh, repository of all of these different products and even songbooks from the like 18th and 19th century and even into the 20th century using the image of either the Indian queen or the Indian princess to sell all sorts of products, but especially for quote unquote natural Goods, Because remember, she also has this spiritual side to her as well. Right. It's just the whole stereotype of uh, Native Americans being tied closer to nature than white people. And isn't that cute and so good for them? But yeah, we have things like the Victorian era Indian queen perfume sold by Bean and Brother in Philadelphia. And then we saw an ad. This is also from the Victorian era for No Wada. Radium Sanitarium Company, which sold radioactive water, largely thought to improve health. This was like all the health rage back in this time period, I think all the way up through the 20s, if I'm not mistaken. But 
here we see just cartoons, basically imagery of Native American women being used to advertise something that was supposedly a natural remedy for health. Yeah. And we find her image on cigars on the 1909 Swamp Root Almanac, uh, which was promotional literature for the manufacturers of the delicious sounding Swamp Root, which uh, apparently was a, quote, great kidney, liver and bladder remedy. So between swamp root and your radioactive water, mm. you're probably feeling tip top. I'm I'm getting heartburn just thinking about it. <laughs> right. And then the the very cleverly named mischief, as in Miss Chief Washington apples. And of course, the illustration on that was a buxom, car- very cartoonish Native American woman. Yeah, and, and you do see similar things. There are probably as many. Products marketed using the warrior stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind are the big chief writing tablets um, that, you know, kids, school kids used for years and years and years. And in addition, of course, to this marketing angle, she plays very well on screen, particularly in Western films, of course. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's interesting to see the sort of parallels with the spicy Latina trope. And in 1946's Duel in the Sun, the woman character uh, is supposed to be half Native American and half Hispanic. And of course, she's viewed as a bad girl who gets involved with two white brothers and ends up stirring up all of this trouble between them. Um, and then, of course, you have 1950's Broken Arrow, in which a young Native American woman falls head over heels for a white man. And then Disney. Then there's Disney uh, with Peter Pan. And I had for- totally forgotten about this mm-hmm. until reading up for this episode. There's Peter Pan and Tiger Lily. And Tiger Lily, like in the animated feature, she dances for Peter and then kisses him while the song What Makes the Red Man Red mm-hmm. is playing. And of course, when Tiger Lily kisses Peter... Then his cheeks turn very red. And, oh, it's like a whole play on the thing. What makes the red man red? And, of course, they're then surrounded by caricature depictions of Native American men. And that's a criticism that is constant for Disney from uh, Peter Pan through Pocahontas, which we're about to talk about, because all of the caricature-like Native American men in that cartoon they all look exactly the same. Whereas yeah. you have someone like Wendy and, and Peter Peter himself, who are white children, whose features are like incredibly detailed and their movements are incredibly detailed. But then you have what looks like like basically Hanna Barbera cartoons of Native American men. And it's one of the same criticisms that surfaced in the nineties when Disney's Pocahontas came out because again, like, okay, all of the Native American people in this movie essentially look exactly the same. Well, because they're just scenery. Oh, and let's just uh, remember that we have a tendency to collapse hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tribes just into one, one poorly drawn image. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And so, of course, this brings us to Pocahontas. Um, Pocahontas, the animated feature. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Pocahontas, Important note. Right. The Disney Pocahontas figure, who in the movie is a beautiful young woman who saves and then falls in love with the strapping John Smith rather than marry a man from her own tribe. And, of course, she's portrayed as this buxom, fully grown adult woman in tune with nature and animals. And of course, 
in researching. I wanted to appropriately research for this episode. So naturally, I went back and watched a ton of clips from the movie. And I got that, like, you know, that very specific, like, full body, hot, sweaty feeling that you get when you're so embarrassed for someone else. Like, I, I got that watching those clips because it's horrifying. I have not seen that movie since I was a kid and it was out in theaters. And of course, when you're a kid, you don't think anything of it. You're like, oh, yeah, that's what Indians are like. Um, but I mean, there's literally a scene for those of you who don't know or don't remember. There is literally a scene when Pocahontas encounters John Smith for the first time. They haven't spoken. He's a stranger. She uh, can't speak English and he can't speak her language. And uh, she is surrounded by this magical glittery rainbow wind. And suddenly she can speak English and perfectly. And it's it's weird. And a lot of people, it makes sense, uh, take issue with it. But Caroline, I mean, the thing I don't think you're getting, because Caroline, have you ever heard the wolf cry to a <laughs> blue corn moon? <laughs> what? Well, deeper question. What is a blue corn moon? I don't know. I might be getting the lyrics wrong. Blue uh, horn moon? I, a blue horn? Who's to say? Yeah, it could be a blue corn, blue horn. Um, or, or ask the grinning bobcat why he grins. Well, I just talked to my, uh, raccoon friend that I, <laughs> that follows me around everywhere. I mean, I will say that, uh, when this movie came out, the, the feature film, my mother was, uh, she was not about to let, uh, me see it because in her words it is revisionist history it is revisionist history but more I think she took issue with the fact that Pocahontas was not talking to a tree <laughs> she could not talk to trees <laughs> so so that was my that was my Pocahontas history um, but we do want to uh, correct that revisionist history let's revise that revisionist history when we come right back from a quick break and talk about who Pocahontas really was and now, back to the show. So before we took a break, we were talking uh, about, well, my mother's distaste for revisionist history in Disney animated feature films. Uh, <laughs> but more importantly, um, we need to talk about, though, the very real truth of how the this legend of Pocahontas, which snowballed into this Disney film and the follow-up film. There was a follow-up of Pocahontas 2 mm-hmm. where they were like, sorry about that, but it was even worse. They didn't really correct anything. Yeah. Um, but we need to talk about how this so-called Pocahontas paradox, as academics call it today, has served, you know, really to mold a more European understanding of Native American women. We really see... Native American women, a lot of times through this Pocahontas lens. And, you know, we should explain that the Pocahontas paradox, what it is, because we've mentioned it several times since it is the in the name of several studies we've cited. But it's the same thing as the princess squad dilemma or the princess prostitute syndrome, or as you might know it, the Madonna whore paradox as well. But it's basically combining the stereotypes of the beautiful, exotic lustful woman and the dangerous, strong, powerful woman. It's basically a lot of fears about women. Yeah, and not to turn this into an episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class, but we need to do our due diligence of just ironing out what really happened. Um, first of all, Pocahontas, 
uh, was from the Mataponi tribe. And by the way, Pocahontas was not actually her name. It was a Powhatan nickname, meaning the naughty one or spoiled child. And her personal name was Matawaka or Matoa. And she also had a public name of Aminute. And she was the daughter of Chief Powhatan. But it's also important to remember, too, that Chief Powhatan was not a king, which means that Pocahontas was not a princess, although with the Mataponi tribe, the chieftain power was matrilineal. However, Pocahontas would not have been the next in line. It would have been one of uh, it would have been a brother still mm-hmm. getting the uh, being handed the the chief torch, the which chief- is also which is also not how things work. <laughs> I am now mangling history yet again. God, at every turn, we're running into hurdles. But OK, so there is a definite questionable time frame here because, you know, we mentioned that in the Disney movie, she is a fully developed adult woman who falls in love with John Smith. But actually, in the time that Pocahontas and her family encounter John Smith in 1607, Pocahontas actually would have been about 10 or 11 years old. And the whole circumstance by which she first meets him is still something that historians and anthropologists are trying to figure out. There's still a lot of theories about how they initially encountered each other. Now, of course, as the legend goes, which John Smith wrote years after Pocahontas died, um, he says that she essentially rescued him from being killed by Chief Powhatan. And that's probably not what happened at all. I mean, there, there's a chance that perhaps there was a ceremonial introduction happening and she interrupted it because uh, there's also a good chance that she would not have had like it would not have been her role to be in that place at that time. Um yeah, all sorts of things that could have happened. But John Smith is not the most reliable narrator for this story. Yeah, because the whole thing is that he wrote this account of spending a winter with this group of people. Um, and the account didn't mention anything of the sort about a rescue. It wasn't until 17 years later that he wrote the follow-up account. And historians basically say, like, yeah, there was a pre-existing story about a Native American young woman who did help out a white guy at some point. So he could have stolen the story because it sounded good. Or he could have actually been helped out by child Pocahontas. But either way... It's possible that he was just trying to make his way as a writer of New World Adventures after it was pretty clear that because he was such a jerk, he wouldn't actually be going back there to make his fortune. Well, and it would have burnished his image because by this time, Pocahontas was well known because she had, you know, been to Europe and made this huge impression. So how convenient for him to be like, oh, BT Dubs, she actually, uh, she rescued me. So, (laughs) yeah. But in 1612... Then 17-year-old Pocahontas, who was married at the time. She was married to a Powhatan named Kakum, who in the Disney movie is portrayed as a violent, savage creature who oh, she great. chooses uh, John Smith over, by the way. Um, she's married. She's taken prisoner by Jamestown residents on a ship for more than a year. And while she was captive, she meets 
John Rolfe, who is 28, already a widower because it is 1612, and he takes an interest in her. Some sources say that, yeah, the feelings were mutual, um, but in the process, she converts to Christianity. She's baptized under the name Rebecca and marries Rolfe. And this is a huge deal for the Europeans because... This means that the now renamed Rebecca Rolfe is the first American Indian woman on record to marry a white guy and, even more importantly, convert to Christianity. What a prime example of how these Europeans are bringing civilization to the quote-unquote new world. And she made such a splash in 1616 when she and her husband traveled to England because she captured their imaginations. She was the New World equivalent of a princess. Here's this woman who has been made refined and civilized by the civilizing influence of her white husband, but she's also the daughter of the Indian equivalent of a king, right? Well, which also justified Rolf marrying her because mm-hmm. a lot of people still uh, were horrified at the thought of that kind of racial intermingling, too. So that the Indian princess stereotype also served that role. Yeah, but so in England, she was used in the Virginia Company of London's campaigns to get people to move to the New World. And of course, she eased people's fears because, oh, well, she's in a ball gown or a, a big you know, fancy dress just like I am. So clearly she's not that savage. But the story does not have a happy ending, as one might imagine. In 1617, she got very ill on the way back to America. And when they basically turned around and came back to England to get her help, she ended up dying at the age of 21. And while she probably died of something that I'm sure a lot of people died of at the time, possibly pneumonia, tuberculosis, or some type of smallpox, contemporary reports of the day tying in with this whole legend and the whole stereotyping said that she died of a broken heart. Oh, goodness. It was probably likely or smallpox or, right. or just living in uh, 1617. Yeah. Because remember, too, by the time Rolf meets her at 28, he's already a widower. Um, but it's just incredible that that rather tragic, not tragic to the point of, say, uh, Sarky Bartman, who we talked about mm-hmm. in our episode on fat-bottomed girls, um, but still someone, you know, this woman of color being shipped off to Europe specifically to be used, kind of put on display mm-hmm. in a way. And if you look at drawings and depictions of her um, from, say, the 1700s, 1800s, it is very disnified already because it's her with very long lashes. She has, um, you know, very, she's very attractive. She's wearing a ball gown, but also she's wearing a headdress. Mm. So it's like the melding of these two, these two cultures. Yeah. And so, of course, now that we have told you the true story with the sad ending, let's look back at Disney and what the cartoon version did in terms of Furthering stereotypes, because we already mentioned Pocahontas's near magical powers, thanks to her, of course, because she's an Indian, her super amazing connection with nature. And of course, the furthering of the stereotype totally serves to disconnect her from the actual human person that we've just told you she was. Well, and there's the whole thing, too, with falling in love with the first white man she sees. That's a common um, trope within a trope. 
And Pee Wee Rudy, who we cited earlier, uh, said that, quote, Disney has created a marketable new age Pocahontas to embody our millennial dreams for wholeness and harmony while banishing our nightmares of savagery and emptiness. In this regard, how Indian women are portrayed in the movies is an extension of white America's attempt to cope with a sense of cultural guilt. And that also reminds me of that paper by Nancy Mithlow, our Indian princess, in which she interviews a lot of Native American artists and one of whom was talking about how um, everyone, she was like, everyone always wants me to paint the warrior chief on a horse. And of course, I never am going to, I'm never going to do that because it's, you know, fulfilling this image. Although there are some days when I am hungry and I need money and I consider, uh, you know, how, how quickly could I paint that horse? How quickly could I do that? Um, because it is all of this, it ties into all of this imagery. Yeah. God, and it goes back to that Arthur Miller guy who was just painting images of the, the savage native peoples, you know, all of them running around without clothes on and being sinful. Well, and even farther back too, because didn't he say, 1575 when we first see those uh those paintings of mm-hmm. the the Indian queen and there is a lot of conversation about art in this because it is important because kind of like uh, from our women explorers episode where you have the botanist sitting there painting these flowers because obviously Google image did not exist photography did not exist and so you relied on art to see these these new worlds. Yeah, and I mean, this ties together so many things we've talked about because just like in our Spicy Latina episode where we talked about what modern media is doing for stereotypes of Latina women, it's the same thing. It's just not, it's not primetime TV, obviously, but it's paintings and lithographs and drawings and journal accounts that are going back to England to inform people's image and their thought process about what the new world was like. And so for a lot of people, that meant that it was a wild, scary place full of savage, sinful people who walked around without shirts on. Yeah. And and the unfortunate thing is I've I have noticed that a lot of people, especially like a lot of Americans today who are not Native American, who are not American Indians, often tend to greet these kinds of conversations with an eye roll of like, oh, well, here we go again Mm -hmm. about the American Indians. Yeah, we know, we know. And or whenever, um, for instance, there are conversations about, hey, that uh, that stereotypical kind of racist mascot we might not want to use that anymore. People, you know what? It's just a mascot. Come on. Um, but it's actually no just being willfully ignorant of history mm-hmm. and why it's just strange that we are so a lot. A lot of people are so um, intensely defensive of wearing blinders to it. Right. Exactly. And so that leads us to our next point about how these stereotypes affect our kids, because we mentioned at the top of the podcast that there are very real issues, social issues, economic issues affecting a lot of American Indians today. And a lot of times that starts with children because uh, Pee Weewardy uh, argues that this whole stereotyping issue is part of a larger miseducation of all of our children, both Native and otherwise, because you have non-Native children who develop these stereotypes of the continent's aboriginal inhabitants Um and Native American children being presented with confusing reflections and interpretations of their own cultures because 
a lot, you know, how many people are going to go out in search of the truth in terms of like, especially with non-native people. I mean, you're going to be presented with a stereotype or a story about Christopher Columbus and you're going to be like, well, I don't know how else to get a different version of things. So cool. Yeah. And we read a study from 2008 in the Basic and Applied Social Psychology Journal looking at the psychological impacts of American Indian sports mascots on Native American kids. And what was interesting about the finding was that the students themselves reported positive associations with these actual mascots, but at the same time reported depressed state self-esteem and community worth because even though we might see these mascots. I mean, Caroline, let's go ahead and uh, identify the elephant in the room, which is the fact that we live in Atlanta and our baseball team, our beloved hometown team are the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. And we have a mascot called Chief Nakahoma. That's not okay. And do I do the tomahawk chop sometimes? Yeah. And that's probably not okay. Um, because these might seem like just fun kinds of fandom things. But they clearly, in the process of collapsing these cultures and limiting the of, of what kids kind of can see themselves in, mm-hmm. leads to that you know the lowered self esteem. Yeah, and so the writers of that study said that uh, basically American Indian mascots are harmful because they remind American Indians of the limited ways that others see them, and in this way constrain how they can see themselves. And it's an, it's things like this that are especially insidious, especially when you look at girls in particular. Uh, Teresa Laframbeau's, uh, in 1994 did some research into Native American adolescents and found that girls were six times more likely to be sexually abused than boys. They're more prone to depression and more likely to be suicidal with higher incidence of alcohol abuse. And she writes, the impact of the welfare culture and the losses can be identified at the individual level by feelings of victimization attributable to racism and stereotyping, value conflicts or confusion, isolation and oppression. She writes, unresolved grief over losses and effects of ongoing cultural genocide are often presented by clients in the form of chronic cycles of crisis and depression. So what do we do? I mean, that's heavy. What do we how do we is it possible to even fix that? And fix seems like too simple of a word. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we've presented here that the a lot of the issue is how children see themselves and the image that they see reflected back when they turn on the on the television. And so Pee Weewardy, that educator, activist, author, calls on his fellow teachers, for instance, to encourage reflective exploration of this and other dimensions of multicultural education. Basically, get in on the ground level, show kids that there are so many multifaceted cultures out there that it's not just Pocahontas and the majestic Indian chief. Well, and this also brings up a quote from Wilma Mankiller, who we did a podcast on a long time ago. Um, she was the first woman to lead the Cherokee Nation. And she said, quote, the appalling lack of accurate information about indigenous women fuels negative stereotypes. Television, film, and print media often portray indigenous women as asexual drudges, the squaw, or innocent children of nature. The power, strength, and complexity of indigenous women are rarely acknowledged or even recognized, probably because of these very stereotypes we've been talking about. And I mean, so tying all of the 
the harm that these stereotypes can do back to education. I mean, Pee Wee Rudy basically addresses the fact that there's so much to learn and to unlearn. And my thought about it in reading all of these sources was that it's good to remember that history tends to be the stories of the winner, the conqueror, the person who won the war. And so even though we have things like matrilineal cultures in Native American societies and women holding important roles and positions, the European men who came over wouldn't have even noticed or cared or they wouldn't have wanted it reflected and sent back to their families in England. And so a lot of the histories that we hear focus only on men and not only on just men, but on the noble savage. And so the more we can learn about both women in all of these various cultures and the more that we can focus on the fact that these were real, actual three-dimensional humans, I think the the better we'll be. Yeah, and this is probably the point where we need to do a follow-up episode at some point to actually talk about those women, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to highlight uh, Native American women, both from history and today, who have helped shape these tribes and these cultures and who are still working uh, every day to advocate on behalf of them and on behalf of, you know, people outside of their tribes as well. But this is where we have to wrap up today. So really curious to hear from listeners about this. If there are any American Indians listening, anyone who has any insights, direct insights into this Indian princess stereotype, we'd love to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, I have a letter here from Judith about our Girl Gangs episode. She says, I really enjoyed it, but I had a few thoughts after listening. I really thought that this topic could have been expanded. I know you guys have constraints on time, so this is probably a whole other topic. There are women like Griselda Blanco, who was a famous drug lord of the Median cartel and one of the first in the cocaine trade in Miami during the 70s. She was also known as the Black Widow. She killed her ex-husbands, the cocaine godmother, and the queen of narco-trafficking. If you look at places like Baltimore and D.C., there's been an uptick in recent years in girl gangs, even as recently as this past week when headlines were made in Baltimore. Also, many gangs that are formed by women are not necessarily for offensive means, but for defense. Like in the Pink Sari Gang in India, which was created to protect women from domestic violence and abuse of all sorts, or the Gang of Women in Mexico that are protecting others from violent cartels. And while not necessarily an organized gang, you also have Diana the Hunter in Juarez, who again protects victims of rape and abuse. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I just thought the topic could have been fleshed out more along the lines of race, especially in class. Thanks, guys. And thank you, Judith. Um, you bring up some really... Excellent points. Um, you know, we, we were focusing more on like a specific subset of the whole gang issue, but I love your ideas and suggestions. So thank you. Well, I've got a letter here from Meredith with the incredible subject line, quote, they that die maids will leap apes in hell or why our culture is anti spinsters. 
She writes, I teach British literature at a community college in Texas, and while preparing for a class, I wrote a poem by Catherine Phillips, a cool lady, who wrote A Married State. Her last line sent me on a J-Store spiral to understand what was going on. I came across an old article about the quote in the subject line of this email and what exactly it meant. It really sheds some interesting light on our cultural aversion to spinsterhood or virginity in general. The article argues that it's all because of the English Reformation and the need for the Protestants and Henry VIII, as well as his children, Edward and Elizabeth, to distance the English population from, quote, the popish practice of celibacy by basically denouncing all celibates as heading directly for hell and that, quote, he who vows chastity is an infidel. At first, it seems to be about both men and women who vow chastity, but as so many unpleasant religious and cultural things do, it eventually shifts to the idea that maids are the one who will be doomed to leap apes around hell. As religious celibacy ends in 1536, the need to tar priests with this brush ends, and since male virginity is so often seen as a joke and also improbable, but female virginity is a threat to the order of things... It begins to be associated with the social and economic burden of old maids. Although luckily this saying is now obsolete, it seems to reflect and strengthen the fears our culture has had for so long of spinsterhood. I find it frustrating and also fascinating that this symbol, virginity, can be at first upheld as an ideal and then disparaged as something foolish and dangerous. Just another example of an impossible dichotomy for women to live up to. So thank you, Meredith, for that fascinating insight from, and she even included her journal citation, from the Journal of American Folklore. And if you have any journal citations to send our way, or just want to let us know your thoughts, momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with our sources, so you can learn more, perhaps, about the true history of Pocahontas, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 